You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Hi, good to have you join us this morning. I'm going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke today. If you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we've been working through this account of Jesus' life uh, in the New Testament. It's called the Gospel of Luke, written by a doctor called Luke, who took eyewitness accounts of those who had encountered Jesus. And we're going to be in chapter 7 today. So if you have a Bible, you might like to turn there now. But before we tuck into today's passage, I want to ask you this question. Who is the greatest man who ever lived? Now, those of you who know me well will likely chuckle at that question because I love to announce that some things are the greatest thing that I've ever seen. So sometimes I watch a football match and I'll say, it's the greatest match I've ever seen. Or I've had a really nice meal. It was the greatest meal I've ever had. But who is the greatest man who's ever lived? Well, if I was in uh, this building with 200 of you right now, you would be shouting back at me probably like Sunday school Jesus! And in some ways you'd be right, but I want to reframe the question and say, who is the greatest non-divine person who has ever lived? And depending on where you're from and depending on your upbringing, you'll likely have different responses to that question. Some of you, uh, you may say it's Mother Teresa. Some of you might say Billy Graham. Some of you, you might say Someone like John Lennon, if you're into music, or uh, Pele, if you love football. I don't know what your response would be. If you're in another part of the world, you might say Muhammad or Buddha. You might have all kinds of different responses depending on your upbringing. Well, what do we use to classify greatness? What do we use to qualify someone as great? Is it that they have a great following? Or is it that they've done great deeds? Or they've had a big impact on history? Well, in today's passage, Jesus actually gives his response to who is the greatest person who has ever lived. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might find this quite surprising, uh, what his response is. So let's look at the passage that we're in today together, which is Luke chapter 7 and verses 18 to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, 
they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating bread and drinking no wine, eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So there we have it. Jesus nominates the greatest person who ever lived. He nominates his cousin, John the Baptist. And it seems quite an odd choice from Jesus because John is a very strange guy. He dressed in very strange clothes. He ate locusts. He hung out in the desert. He's not only a strange guy, but he's also in quite a bad situation right now. He's in prison. We know that from Matthew's account of exactly the same story. John's in prison because he's challenged Herod, because Herod, uh, the, the ruler of the time, had taken his brother's wife as his own. And John the Baptist has ended up in prison. So not only is he weird, not only is he in prison, but he's also seemingly at quite a low ebb in his faith at this point. But we're seeing that Jesus nominates him as the greatest man who ever lived. And we're going to look at what made John great. And we're going to look at four things that made John great. But this isn't some do these four things and God will accept you kind of message. Because that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. But Jesus is inviting us to look at John and see his greatness. And we're going to take some time just to look at this. And we're going to learn some things as we go. And then we're going to behold Jesus together. Because John the Baptist would hate for there to be a message about him which didn't lead to us looking at Jesus because he came to prepare the way for Jesus. He came to show people Jesus. So number one, what makes John great? John was not consumed by self. Self-obsession and individualism is one of the greatest diseases in the world right now. It has spread right across the world. And, and particularly right now in my generation, there is a huge deal with self-obsession and, and self-actualization and, and, and self-fulfillment. And, and people saying, you, you don't, need to tell, don't need to have anyone tell you what you're to do with your life. You should just do what feels right. You should just do what is right for you. You should just do what satisfies you. And, and, and you should spend you, the, the, your money on you. You should spend your time on you. It's all about you. It's all about self. And we're encouraged to make decisions on the basis of what will make us feel good, of what will be best for us, what we feel like doing. It's, it's huge right now. It's absolutely huge. You, you only need to take a step back and, and look at the way our world is, is working right now. It's all about self-adverts that come to us. If you have this, then you will be fulfilled. If you have this, then you will be satisfied. It doesn't matter about the debt you might be racking up or uh, the, the consequences on other people. This is all about you. Well, John was the opposite of that. He was, he was born as a, a miracle baby to quite old parents. He was, from a young age, instructed that his life was not about him. It was not all about him. He was born to prepare the way for someone else. He was born to be a part of a mission that was far bigger than himself. He was born to be a part of God's mission in the world, to draw for himself a people from every nation who would 
be his children, that he would be their father. And John knew that he was on this earth for something way bigger than himself. And we would do well, parents or those who have influence with children and young people here, to teach them that life is way more than about themselves. Life is about Jesus. Life is about seeing his mission in the world right now and getting on board with it. John was not all about me, me, me. The driving force in his life was God's mission. What's the driving force in your life? Is it self? Is it self-betterment so that people might congratulate you and, and speak well of you and, and speak highly of you? What are, what's, what's driving the big decisions that you take? Is it the glory of God or the contribution towards the mission of God in this world? Or is it about yourself? John was not obsessed with self. Secondly, John was living to point people to Jesus. John existed to point people to his cousin Jesus. That was his ministry. He was like an usher, telling people the way to go, except you wouldn't have John as an usher. He, he looked weird. He would have been eating locusts at the door. You wouldn't have him on your welcome team, pointing people to where they needed to go. And yet that's really what his ministry was. It was pointing people to the one who they really needed to see. And Early on in his ministry, as, as big crowds were coming to be baptized by him, he one day sees his cousin as Jesus has now started his own ministry. And in John chapter 1, this is a different John we're reading from here, one of the disciples, John. This is what we read. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. This is his younger cousin, and yet he's saying, he ranks before me because he was before me, i.e. he's existed forever. And he later on goes to say, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the one. John is, John is saying to everyone around him, hey, this guy, this is the Lamb of God. This is the one you've been waiting for. This was his ministry to point people to Jesus. He could have had a successful ministry in and of himself. He was clearly a gifted communicator. People wanted to be around him. Even though his message was about repentance, people flocked to him. He could have started John the Baptist Ministries. He could have had a website and a logo. He could have had nice white teeth and nice clothes and nice cars. But he knew that his ministry was not about building a name for himself, but for pointing people to Jesus. And this is to be our ministry if we know Jesus. This is to be our privilege if we know him. It's simply to point people to Jesus. We've been going through sharing our testimonies in one of the life groups that I'm leading this term. And it's been so powerful just to hear stories from people's lives of how Jesus has saved them, how he's changed them, how he's sustained them, how he's been faithful to them through many years. And it's been so powerful just hearing story after story. There really is, I don't think, anything more powerful than people's testimony when it comes to speaking to people about Jesus. And listen, we don't have to have a PhD in theology. We don't have to have debated with the, the most prominent atheists in order to share Jesus. We simply need to 
share our story, share how he has impacted us, how he has changed us. We need to get the conversation from the big questions to, hey, look at Jesus, because he's, he is what is attractive about our faith. We don't need to try and be. We don't need to try and be cool or try and uh, be attractive in some ways. Jesus is, is glorious, and we want to point people to him. So let us be like, like John the Baptist. Let us seek opportunities to show people Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He is glorious and he's worth signposting people to. Thirdly, John is great because John sacrificed it all for Jesus. John's mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. It was a, a mission of calling people to repentance, to turn away from their wrongdoing. And he had to call out some people in the process. He called out Herod, as I mentioned, and it led to him being thrown into prison. And John, he, he wasn't living for his own comfort. He had to make some sacrifices. He was willing to look foolish. He was willing to be ill-spoken of, to be misunderstood. He was willing to go to prison and even willing to go to his death on account of Jesus and the way of righteousness. I'm not saying that in order to be great, we all must seek to end up in prison. But what I am saying is that if we seek to follow Jesus, if he is our Lord, then there's going to be sacrifices. For some, there's going to be sacrifices of popularity. We, we, we're going to have to accept that we're not going to be loved by everyone. We're going to have to accept that there's some people are going to dislike us or mistrust us because we trust Jesus. For some, there's going to be a sacrifice of finances as we realize that everything we have isn't our own. It belongs to God and that we, he calls us to be generous with what we have been given. And so it's going to look like for some of us a sacrifice in what's well, going to look for all of us like a sacrifice financially. But for some, we're just going to know that more than others, because perhaps money has become something of an idol for us. Maybe for some, it will be a sacrifice in the way of relationship because you want to do relationships God's way and it will mean laying down some things or laying down some desires and say, I want to do things God's way. It will look like a sacrifice for all of us. For some, it might be that we're denied promotion in the workplace because we have to challenge some unrighteous ways. We might have to challenge some dishonesty or some ways in which the business isn't doing things with integrity. And it might mean that we don't end up getting promoted. There will be sacrifices for all of us. The disciples of Jesus would find this out all too well. John found it out by being thrown into prison and eventually executed. All of Jesus' disciples, bar one, were killed for their faith. So history tells us. And the one that didn't end up being executed for his faith was imprisoned until his death. So for us, it will look like sacrifice sometimes. It will feel difficult sometimes as we give up things for the sake of the gospel. It was knowing Jesus that led to the Apostle Paul saying in Philippians, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I wonder if you've, you've basked in that goodness of who Jesus is. I wonder if you've, you've spent time just 
realizing afresh how good he is, that you might be able to say like Paul, I have counted everything as rubbish for the sake of knowing him. It doesn't even begin to compare. Someone anonymously gave me this book a few years ago. They just left it on my desk in the office. It's called the Faithful, it's called Faithful Unto Death, The Martyrs of East Anglia. Now, I've got no idea why this book was given to me. I don't know what they were trying to say to me. Uh, I get little things left on my desk sometimes anonymously, and there's been quirkier things given to me over the years. But uh, this was a fascinating book, and it was so challenging to me. And this book is, is detailing different people in this region who gave up their life for Christ in many, many years gone by. And it, it speaks of one guy called Robert Samuel, who uh, in 1565 was killed in the center of Ipswich, where the town hall is now standing, because he preached the truth of the gospel in an era where the Bible was censored by the corrupt priesthood at the time. They wouldn't let anyone else know what the Bible taught. And Robert Samuel wanted to tell everyone about what the Bible really said. And he wrote to his congregation from prison saying this, Be constant in obeying God rather than men. For although they slay our sinful bodies, they cannot do it but by God's goodwill, to his praise and honor, and to our eternal joy. For our blood shed for the gospel shall preach it with more fruit and with greater furtherance than did our mouths, our lives, and writings. And then he was executed not long after that on the Cornhill where the town hall stands. And on the day of his death, he said this, All things are but loss for the excellent knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Sounds just like the Apostle Paul. Yes, I dwell in him and he in me. I am assured and fully persuaded on this rock I have built by God's grace, my dwelling and resting place for body and soul, life and death. And I commit my cause to Christ and the righteous and just judge. And there were two women who had been helping him. They'd been hiding him in their home and they were killed a few days later. One of them was Alice Driver. And and, and at her trial, she said to the judge, I am a poor woman, but you will not be able to resist the spirit of God in me. It doesn't make sense to endure hardship unless you've tasted of the goodness of Jesus. It doesn't make sense that these people like John the Baptist and Robert Samuel and Alice Driver would endure what they endured unless they had tasted and seen that Jesus was truly glorious and that to know him really was fullness of life. And listen, even for radical followers of Jesus, there are dark nights of the soul where we question, is it all worth it? Is the suffering that we're enduring worth it? Is what I've given up worth it? Is the sacrifice worth it? And John seems to have a dark night of the soul, but what makes him great is that he turns to Jesus in the darkness and he sends his disciples to say to Jesus, are you the one? Now, there's a couple of theories as to why John did this. I mean, he grew up with Jesus. He's his cousin. He pointed to Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God. He's, he's seen Jesus do incredible things. And yet there's this doubt, perhaps. Well, some people think he's sending his disciples to go and meet Jesus. He wants, even in prison, he wants as many people as possible to meet Jesus. But I think he's having a moment here where he's facing up to the truth that he's soon going to be executed. And he wants to know, he wants assurance that Jesus is really the one. He he, he wants to know doubly for certain that Jesus, you're the one. Because if there's someone else coming, I'll keep my, my head on my body, thank you very much. I just need to know. He's having a moment where 
He's, he's crying out, I just need you to show me. I, want, I just want assurance. And that is okay. It's okay in the dark moments to call out to God and say, God, show me. Show me again. We've got to turn to him in these moments. And Jesus is so kind to John. He's so kind to him. Listen, we, we mustn't doubt the goodness of God. If we, if we just think he's going to operate the way we should expect him to operate, then we're going to sometimes feel let down by him. Tim Keller, the great preacher and writer in America, he says, if we impose our understanding of timing and schedule on Jesus, we will struggle to feel loved by him. There's going to be times if we, if we just think that he's got to work by our schedule, we're going to think, well, what, does he really care? But we notice how patient and kind Jesus is with John. He doesn't get angry that John's asking. He simply says to him, look, well, the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised to life. He's quoting all of these uh, passages from Isaiah. He's showing him, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one, John. You don't need to fear. And then he even praises John. He even uh, bigs John up before his followers. He calls him a great man. He, he calls him a solid leader. Listen, God won't blast you if you have doubts or moments of darkness. If you have moments when you're just calling out to him saying, God, what are you doing? He won't blast you for that. As we follow Jesus, there's going to be some things we don't understand that don't immediately make sense to us. God is he's big enough to hear our doubts and Jesus knows we're going to despair at times. But he doesn't want us to get tripped up. He doesn't want us to stumble when he doesn't meet our expectations, not to give up on him to see that following him and trusting him will ultimately be worth it. So what happens next? Well, as always with Jesus, there's a mixed response. We see that the tax collectors, maybe some of Levi's friends from a couple of chapters before, when Levi gets to meet Jesus and invites his friends for a meal with Jesus, they give their lives to Jesus. And yet the Pharisees and some of the lawyers, they, they stand on looking cynical. And at this point, Jesus he gets mad. Jesus often uses children in a good light. He says, you know, we're to be like children in our faith. We're to trust God and believe God. Well, in this instance, he calls the Pharisees children, and it's, it's not a good comparison. He's saying, you're like children who they're playing a game, and suddenly they don't like the rules of the game. They want different rules, and then they play in a different way, and they don't like those rules either. You can't be happy. You cannot be satisfied. And Jesus is saying, well, John's come preaching repentance, He's serious. He, he lives a very simple lifestyle. I, I've come with, with feasting and spending time with sinners and I've come with joy and deliverance for people and none of this is satisfying you. You, you cannot be convinced. You, you cannot be persuaded to let down your pride and accept me. You can't, you can't do it. He's frustrated that they will not let go of their pride. He cannot win. He, they... they they're confounded. They, they just understand Jesus. He confounds all their expectations of what the Messiah should be like. But let me tell you, you, you might be watching this. You might have been joining online church for some time. You might be wondering, what on earth is all this about? What is going on in the world right now with huge, massive things going on right across the globe? You, you need to understand that whilst Jesus, he may not do everything the way you expect him to do it, he is always right. And he always does things well. And he is who he says he is. He is the always existing son of God. And he is 
the only way to the Father. He's the only way to know the creator of the universe. He's the only way to salvation. And it's only through trusting in him that you will know life in all its fullness. He is the Lamb of God, the one who went to the cross to bear in his body our wrongdoing, the punishment that we deserved. He is the Lamb of God. He's the one that you are searching for, even if you don't know it. You might be searching for satisfaction. Well, you, you are so searching for satisfaction. I can guarantee that. Jesus is the one. And knowing him and only knowing him will bring life in all its fullness. And today he's, he's calling you to trust in him. He's calling you to place your faith in him. Right now you can do that. As I pray in just a moment, you can do that. And listen, friends, you might be watching on and you might have been a Christian for years. You might, like John, have pointed people to Jesus. You might have experienced healing. You might have seen great things happening. Jesus is again calling you to trust him. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Trust me that in all of this chaos, I am still on the throne. I'm still the one. I'm still the one. I'm going to pray in just a moment and maybe you'd like to give your life to Jesus today. And if you do that, we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch with us. Please let us know that you've made that step. We would really love to help you in your next steps of following Jesus. But let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I look to you right now. In the chaos that this world is experiencing, I look to you and I trust that you are the one. I trust that you're the one that my heart has been searching for all these years. I trust that you're the one who will truly satisfy. I trust that you came not just to heal the sick and to free the oppressed, but you came to forgive sins. You came to make a way for us to be completely forgiven. And I trust in you right now. I give my life to you right now. Why don't you just put some of that in your own words to him? And if you are someone who's been a Christian for a long time, let's just reaffirm our trust in Jesus. Jesus, we trust you. Jesus, whilst we might be going through some things like John, maybe nothing like his, but maybe some things that are just confusing us, we trust you and we know that you're the one. You're good and we do not need to be afraid. Come and strengthen us in the truth of who you are. Help us to be those who, like John, point people to Jesus. Help us to be those who, who, like John, sacrifice for the sake of knowing Jesus, who give things up gladly. Help us to be those like John who, who live in the light of the big mission that God is on in the world, that we're not all about self, that we're not all about what we can get out of this life, but we would be those who live radically on mission for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. It's been great to have you with us. God bless you and we look forward to carrying on in our series in Luke next week. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.